Merry Christmas. My name's Sarah. It's nice to see you all this morning. We're reading today. Please join me in looking along at Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and reading through to verse 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Well, let me add my welcome. My name's Rod. Uh, if you're new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great that you can join us for Christmas. And yeah, we hope as that we look at this passage together now and all that we've already considered, um, that we'll be thinking more about what God did at that first Christmas in sending his son. So let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we seek to understand the Bible together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this morning. We thank you for the joy of Christmas, of time with family and friends, of lots of food and festivity. We thank you too for the wonderful gift of your Son. And we pray that as we think about the events of that first Christmas, that you would give us insight and clarity that we might understand your love for us in sending Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever failed to recognise royalty was present? The former uh, royal protection officer, Richard Griffin, uh, revealed that the late Queen Elizabeth once played a prank on two American tourists who didn't recognise her. Uh, they were hikers up in Scotland and they'd been walking around near Balmoral Castle, uh, where the Queen goes for her holidays in Scotland, and they just bowled up and ran into the Queen and Richard Griffin, her uh, protection officer. And it was clear, he said, from the moment that we first stopped, that they hadn't recognised the Queen. And so uh, they began telling her about where they came from and all the sites around Great Britain that they had visited. And, um, and then they said to the Queen, oh, do you come up here often? 
Um, and she said, well, actually, I've been coming up here for 80 years. I actually live in London, but I, I have a home just over the hill here. And um, to which they said, oh, well, if you've come up here so many years, you must have met the Queen. And um, she said, quick as a flash, no, I haven't, but Dick here, my friend has, and he'll be able to tell you all about her. And so uh, Griffin enjoyed this moment. He said, well, I knew, having spent a lot of years with her, that she'd cope with a joke. And so they asked me, you know, what I thought of the Queen. What was she like? He said, well, I can find her a bit cantankerous at times, but she has a lovely sense of humour. <laughs> and on and on it went. Eventually, uh, the American uh, man said, oh, well, I'd like a photo with you, Richard. And so he shoved the camera in the Queen's face and said, take a photo of us. And so there's the Queen taking a photo of Richard Griffin with this American couple. Eventually, Richard decided that he might convince them that they could have a photo with this old lady that was there as well. And so they had a photo. They never said anything about it, waved goodbye, and off they headed. And the Queen turned to Richard Griffin and said, I wonder when they get back home whether they'll show this photo to their friends and somebody will recognise me and explain to him the story. Well, here was a failure to recognise royalty that was perhaps inexcusable, uh, but it's not quite the same with Jesus, is it? It's clear that the royalty of baby Jesus was largely hidden. Despite the appearance of some angels to the shepherds, uh, there were no obvious signs of his greatness at his birth. Instead of being born in a palace, as all future rulers are, here he is being born in an animal feeding trough in the backwater town of Bethlehem to some poor Jewish teenage girl. And the only visitors at his birth in this humble scene were some lowly shepherds who were always looked down upon in their society at the time because they were often viewed as unclean, much like the feeding trough that Jesus had been placed into. This was not the trappings of royalty. This is not how you would picture things with the birth of a king. It was a reversal, clearly, of what anyone would expect. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning is this. Why was God's promised king born in such humble circumstances? Why was it done this way? Why was God's promised king born in such humble circumstances? going to consider two answers to that question this morning. The first answer is this, because Christ's rule would be different. Christ's rule would be different. Notice again what's recorded in Luke 2 verses 9 to 12. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So after the initial appearance of the angel in verse 9 and the terror that it created for the angels, we have this message uh, created for the shepherds. We have the angel's message concerning the birth of Jesus in verses 10 to 12. And we're told that it's good news. This is good news that's going to be joyful for everyone. It's the birth of a baby who is our saviour. Now, the word saviour there just means deliverer, rescuer, as we would understand it commonly. And it was a term that was used of God the Father in the Old Testament. God was the rescuer of his people Israel. 
And so using this title to refer to Jesus points to the divine nature of this baby that was born. But then we've got these added titles that are also given to this child. We're given the titles Messiah and Lord. Now Messiah or Christ means anointed one, somebody who is going to be king, the promised king or ruler of Israel, the son of David, who had been promised way back in 2 Samuel 7, would have an eternal kingdom. This is the child that has been born. And then the term Lord, again, is an exalted title, usually used to refer to God. And together, all of these titles create this exalted status of Jesus and his role in his father's plan to rescue humanity. Now, the problem for the first people hearing this message and for the last 2,000 years is that the rescue that they thought was needed was not the one that Jesus was providing. The Jews in the first century were thinking about removal of the Roman oppressors, get rid of the occupiers of our country. And so this mistaken expectation had been for centuries what the Jews were anticipating with the Messiah or Christ, that when this figure arrived, he would throw off Roman rule, he would return Israel to the glory days of King David, where they had self-rule and they could do whatever they wanted free as God's people. But it just wasn't a military or political ruler that was being offered. That was never God's intention for his Christ or anointed king. That was not the kind of rule that Jesus would bring. The rule of this king would be different. He said so later when he was about to be crucified as he came before the Roman governor Pilate and said that his kingdom was not of this world but from another place. The salvation he would offer, therefore, would also be different. This was a servant king. He was one who came not to be served but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This kind of ruler is completely different to any royalty has ever come before or been since. And so hence the humble circumstances of his birth. It signified that God was doing something different, that this was the kind of king that would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, not come as the military ruler on some stallion to throw off the Romans. But for many Jews in the first century and for many people around the world for the last two millennia, this doesn't seem to be what they want or need. They don't recognise Jesus as their promised king in this way. Now, as I mentioned at the start, failure to recognise royalty is actually a regular occurrence these days because often royals aren't walking around in their gowns with crowns on and so on and people miss it. It can happen because people are just looking casual. It even happened for our future princess, our own Mary Donaldson from Tasmania. She was sitting in the slip inn a pub in Sydney when she met, met Pre Prince Frederick of Denmark for the first time. She had actually no idea who he was. He obviously didn't strike her as a future king of the Danish people. He was over here in 2000 at the Sydney Olympics to watch the Danish sailing team hopefully win a medal. And there he was in this pub having lunch and uh, Mary was introduced to him and his entourage, a few others that were there, but she had no idea, and others around her observed that. And somebody came up to her after 30 minutes and said, do you know who these people are? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this is 
the Danish prince. Oh. Now, there was no real consequences for missing that in her case. In fact, she married the man four years later, so it worked out quite fine, didn't it? But if we miss royalty, God's purposes, in the case of his son Jesus, then we're missing out on an incredible offer, an incredible opportunity. The stakes are so much higher with the birth of Jesus. This child who grew into man, who spoke and acted with authority like no one else in the history of the world. A public ministry that was so astounding, it drew the attention of everyone in the land, from the least to the highest. Jesus taught thousands. He controlled nature. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead. And then he voluntarily laid down his life so that all people who might place their trust in him could be included in his eternal kingdom. This is a ruler, a king with a difference. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? He was born in such obscurity. But there are not many people around the world today who have not heard of the name Jesus. In 2013, there was a book written called Who's Bigger? Where Historical Figures Really Rank. It was written by a computer scientist named Steve Skinner and a Google engineer, Charles Ward, uh, which ranks historical figures in order of their significance. You can imagine from their um, jobs how they did this. Uh, the authors used English Wikipedia as their primary data source. They ran the data through algorithms to arrive at a ranking of all the historical figures. They compared all the English Wikipedia articles against five criteria, uh, two that draw on the Google page rank, three that drew on internal metrics, the number of times the page has been viewed, the number of edits to the page, the size of the page. And the concept is that these criteria measure the current fame of the subject, the search and interest of people in the world today. And they adjusted this to compensate for the skewing of data towards more recent people, trying to arrive at a true, likely historical significance. They came up with their top five, and Jesus was number one. Second was Napoleon, third was Muhammad, fourth was William Shakespeare, and fifth was Abraham Lincoln. I couldn't have given you that list. But there's nothing actually that even comes close to Jesus in human history of our planet. If you think just on the basis of a couple of things. He is the God-man whose living followers now number about 2 billion people, let alone the millions who have put their trust in him in the last 2,000 years. That's an amazing level of recognition for somebody born in obscurity. But he was a different kind of king. It was a different rule that he would bring as people are included in his kingdom simply by trusting in his payment, his death. And that brings me to a second answer to our question. Why did God do things this way, these humble circumstances for Christ's birth? Well, not only because his rule would be different, but because Christ's role would be different. Have a look again at verses 13 and 14 in Luke chapter 2 that we read earlier. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. The good news that the birth of this baby marks is the opportunity of peace with God. What is this peace? It refers to the fact that Jesus was not only born in a manger some 2,000 years ago, but that he would later die, as I've already mentioned, that he, 
came to lay down his life for those he would live among and so bring peace with God, broker a reconciliation between us, flawed humans, and a holy, perfect God. But, of course, the natural question when we hear that is, well, how does this baby who grew into the man Jesus actually bring me peace with God by dying on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem? I mean, why am I at odds with God anyway? Why do I need this baby to broker a peace deal for me? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that we are all enemies of God because we have rejected his rightful rule. We say that we're not interested in him. We desire to run our lives our own way. We sit on the throne and we push God away. We ignore him. And the Bible actually calls this sin. We can do it in a very hostile way where we shake our fist, as it were, at God and want nothing to do with him. Or we can simply just ignore God, ignore his love and his care for us, his desire to direct our lives as our creator. Either way, we're still rebelling against the one who created life, who made us to be in a right relationship with him, who desires us to be reconciled to him. But it's tricky, isn't it? We know on a human level that it's hard to reconcile a broken relationship. It's difficult. You know, after 75 years of fighting, a war broke out again between the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas and the State of Israel on October 7, as we're all well aware. Hamas uh, invaded into southern Israel, you might say, killing over 1,200, kidnapping over 230. But of course then the Israeli Defence Forces retaliated swiftly. And now over 20,000 Palestinians have died in the conflict. 1.9 million people have been displaced out of only 2.2 million 60% of all buildings in the Gaza Strip destroyed. And you have to think that if a permanent ceasefire eventually comes, which we're all praying for, it seems that the many deaths that have taken place will lead to an ongoing alienation for decades yet to come. It's a heartbreaking conflict. And we look at such intractable situations, and there are many around the world, and we think there'll never be peace. You can't fix this. How can you reconcile such parties? But the Bible actually tells us that our greatest alienation, our greatest need for reconciliation is with God. But so often we don't see ourselves as coming to a table as a Palestinian and a Jew trying to peace deal and imagining how hard that conversation would be. And yet we're in an even more difficult situation before God. It's just that we don't see it. Or we ignore it. We say that we want nothing to do with God. We're the ones that have ended the relationship with him, and yet God makes the first move. He reaches down in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. He offers the olive branch and says, I welcome you back. The Bible is God's letter of reconciliation, and it all centers on Jesus, centers on what he did to bring peace between us and a perfect God. And this is where the birth of Jesus comes in. That's why it's such good news. That's why it's joy for all people. This is an offer to all of humanity. It's the peace that we really, really need. A baby and peace, it just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, let me tell you a story that might unpack this further. In Don Richardson's book, Peace Child, he tells of going with his family 
to the Sawi, uh, a headhunting tribe in Papua New Guinea. Uh, this is back in the 1960s. Uh, their savagery at the time was a way of life. The tribesmen considered headhunting, cannibalism and treachery as virtues. And as these tribes people heard the story of Jesus' life for the first time from him, they considered Judas the hero who betrayed Jesus, not Jesus who died on the cross. And Don almost despaired as a result of ever reaching with them, helping them to understand the good news. And the warfare between the Sawi and an adjoining tribe um, grew so intense that the Richardson decided they just had to pack their bags and leave. They were in danger and they had to get out of there. But when the Sawi heard of it, they were deeply disturbed because they'd actually come to love and respect the family. They trusted them. And so to prevent them from leaving, the Sawi said, we will have a special session and make a peace deal with the adjoining tribe. Well, the next day, Don watched with mounting curiosity as this peace ritual began. Young children from the warring tribes were to be exchanged. And as long as all of those children were alive, peace would continue. It was an anguishing ritual because every parent didn't want their child taken by the chief and handed to the enemy who lived over the hill. And in a state of confusion about what he would do, the chief feeling, the tension of all of that, he took his only son and ran across to the opposition tribe, literally giving away the future of his tribe so that peace might descend on the valley. And it did. And Don Richardson walked away thinking, wow, the significance of this ceremony, such a powerful analogy. So shortly after that, he got all the elders of the chief of that tribe and sat down and explained that God, the heavenly father, sent his one and only son as the peace child to bring us peace with God, deal with the broken relationship. And the light went on. The gospel made sense. Well, what was the response of the shepherds at the first Christmas? What did they think of these crazy events in this backwater town? Well, the shepherds acted on the word of God, didn't they? Given by the angel, they went to see, see if God's word was true. It was fulfilled. There it was. There was the baby lying in a manger. And so they went on to tell people. They said, this is the great news. And they were witnesses then, testifying to everyone that would listen that this is the amazing thing that God has done. What about our response? What are we to do? You know, the gift of Jesus is the first and most important Christmas gift. Uh, we're really big at having gifts in our society, our culture here at Christmas. Now, the gift of Jesus is a bit different, though. It's not a matter of just knowing about Jesus or knowing about the Christmas story. We know with gifts under the tree that you haven't actually received the gift until you open it and actually take it out. Nobody actually leaves their gift under the tree, right, and says, oh, I'll open it next Christmas. I've never seen a child do that. Uh, we want to get hold of it and open it. We want to take part. We haven't got it until we've opened it and enjoyed it. But how do we receive Jesus? Uh, it's not a normal present. Well, there's two things that the Bible tells us, uh, repentance and faith. Two things that we need to do to receive Jesus. Firstly, we need to acknowledge that we have ignored God, that we actually need forgiveness, that there's a broken relationship that needs to be bridged. And then secondly, we need to believe. We need to place our faith or trust in Jesus 
that it's his payment on the cross, his death and resurrection, that actually wipes the slate clean and gives us a fresh start with God. So repentance, a 180-degree turn and about face, and then belief or trust. I think our culture struggles more with the second idea. I think we understand when we're in the wrong and there's something that needs to be fixed. But the idea of trust or faith in Jesus, like how does that work? It just sounds like some blind leap in the dark to people. They often express it that way. It's a blind faith based on your feelings. How can I know? But actually it's a trust based on historical records of Jesus' life. It's based on the evidence that we have and making a decision, exercising our mind to place our trust on the basis of what we know. We exercise that kind of faith, that kind of trust, every day of our lives. Let me give you one example. Uh, Back in 2010, our church uh, sent a short-term mission team to Chiang Mai in Thailand uh, to visit a couple of our mission partners, and I was part of that small group that went, and eventually about halfway through our time, we had a day off, and they took us up into the rainforest uh, just north of Chiang Mai, where they have some of the longest, highest, and fastest zip lines in the world. And so there we were, um, kilometres and kilometres of track ahead of us. You get to explore the forest from 50 metres above. So you're just sailing through the canopy. And so there you are standing on a platform. And they say to you, we'll just lean back, trust the rope, the harness. You just step off the platform and off you go. Just trust. And um, thousands of people do it every year. Just take a step. It's easy. Well, we did that. We had a great day. And, um, but there's this moment, isn't there, where you're standing on the end of any platform and you're thinking, well, it's a thin rope. Um, <laughs> who last checked this thing? I'm in the middle of a forest. If this goes wrong, how do they get me out of here? Um, we take a step, though. And we exercise that kind of faith every day. You know, you're sitting on a chair now. You'll probably get in the car to drive home. You don't know what's going to happen in any of these cases. We're always exercising trust moment by moment. Is it different with Jesus? No. We exercise faith in God's word to us, in the evidence that we have before us to take that step. Now, maybe you've still got lots of questions. Uh, Maybe you're sitting here today as someone that's never placed their trust in Jesus and you're really not sure about it. Look, uh, let me encourage you this Christmas to have a chat with a loved one or a friend that's brought you today or that you're with um, about what it is to place your trust, to lean into Jesus. We'll have free Bibles out on the welcome desk as you leave. We'd love you to take one of those and read for yourself. Pick up the Gospel of Luke that we've been looking at today and read the Christmas story for yourself. And then keep going because Christmas doesn't make much sense until you get to Easter and the end of the story. But this is why Christmas is such a joyful time. It's why it's such a celebration. That's why he is our saviour, the one door to heaven, the one ransom for your guilty soul, the one person who can bring you peace with God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to reflect today on your great plan to rescue us, to bring us peace with you. We thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but you sent the light, the person of your son, so that we might have a way back, that that gap might be bridged. Oh, Lord, we pray that for those of us who have received Jesus already, that wonderful gift that you sent the first Christmas, that we would be so thankful for it, that we reflect again with gratefulness 
of your faithfulness and goodness to us. And for any today who have not yet received that gift, we pray, Lord, that you might help them to see your great love, your desire for relationship, the lengths that you have gone to to bring us back. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus we have the one who can bring us peace, eternal peace, the ruler with a difference, the one who had a different role as a king. Help us to receive him, we pray. Amen.